You're listening to the Capitol Press Room, and we're taking a trip this segment to New York City, which was the home of the May 2nd meeting of the Rent Guidelines Board, which held a preliminary vote on the maximum allowable rent increases for rent-stabilized apartments in the five boroughs. And while this may sound mundane and may very well have been a mundane event in the past, it was an exciting hour-long meeting this year, which included chanting from the audience and then about 30 minutes of demonstrating, including marching around the board. For more on what happened and why, we're joined by State Senator Julia Salazar, a Brooklyn Democrat and a leading liberal housing voice at the Capitol. Welcome back to the show, Senator. Thanks, as always, for having me, Dave. It's our pleasure. So what should my listeners outside of New York City know about the Rent Guidelines Board? Like, why does it exist and what are its powers? It is very important in the lives of at least a million people in New York City and other tenants outside of the city, actually, as well. The Emergency Tenant Protection Act, which is state law that was established decades ago, it allows localities, counties actually, to establish a rent guidelines board in order to implement rent stabilization in in certain cases. So we also, at the state level, amended it in 2019 in the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act to allow counties across the state, not just in New York City, to implement rent stabilization, to establish a rent guidelines board if they declare a housing emergency, which requires a vacancy rate of less than 5%. But beyond that, does broadly give discretion to counties to be able to bring rent stabilization to their towns and and villages and cities. This is important for affordability, to actually establish guidelines for rent-stabilized leases and to limit rent increases or even, in some cases, implement a rent freeze or a rent rollback for rent-stabilized tenants. And is it the board that sets what the specific rent hikes will be, or do they just give a possible window that the building owners or operators can then work within? They do provide a sort of window of a percentage of of increases. In New York City, for example, we have a rent guidelines board. It is nine members. Two are um, ostensibly tenant, representing the interests of of tenants on the board. Two are representing the interests of landlords. And the five other members, including the chair of the board, are supposed to represent the interests of the general public. And they also have a staff who, throughout the year, will issue reports on the state of the rent-stabilized housing stock, the state of the rental market in general, maybe. The staff don't make recommendations, but they provide data and and research to guide the board's recommendations. And what we saw just a couple weeks ago was a preliminary vote that the board holds every year, which does make a recommendation. In in this case, a, a potential rent increase for the rent-stabilized housing stock, which in, in New York, again, is, it's a, about a million rental units. It's the, the minority of housing that's available in New York City, but it's a substantial amount of, of rent-regulated housing. And in this preliminary vote that we saw a couple of weeks ago, the board just voted on a recommendation of anywhere from a, a 2 to 5% increase on one-year rent-stabilized leases and even up to a 7% rent increase on two-year leases. That is 
just a preliminary vote. It's not final. In June, the board will meet again and have their final binding vote, which will set rents and, and lease terms for uh, lease, rent-stabilized leases, of course, that begin in o- October of this year for one- and two-year rent-stabilized leases. What sort of anticipation was there for the May 2nd meeting? And from your experience, how did that compare to past years when they were going through this process? So in previous years, for example, during the de Blasio administration, there was a a rent freeze at one point. We saw rent increases last year as a result of the Rent Guidelines Board's final vote. But in this moment, beyond the board itself, tenants are facing rent increases already unregulated tenants. We saw this increase on rent-stabilized tenants last year, so a lot of them are already struggling to pay the the rent that um, they're currently legally obligated to pay. Costs have have increased across the board for, for all of us, and so I think that there is definitely more tension and, and pressure and desperation on the part of people who are impacted by the RGB's decisions. Um, some rent-stabilized landlords, certainly, but you know, no doubt the people are, who are actually going to have to pay these potential rent increases. So this year, with that climate in mind, going into the preliminary vote, we saw a demonstration from tenants, organized tenants, um, and also from elected officials who, um, you know, they're, they're our constituents, um, showing up and demanding a rent rollback because of how rent burdened New Yorkers are right now. Um, many are struggling financially in general, emerging from, you know, the pandemic isn't, isn't over, but emerging from the peak and the, the toughest past few years of the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, yeah, I think like that's, that's the important context. Um, so on this, in this preliminary meeting, they disrupted the meeting and just wanted to make it very clear that any rent increase would be unacceptable and is, is going to probably lead to more families being displaced um, due to inability to keep up with the rent hikes. Well, for listeners just joining us, so you're listening to the Capitol Press Room, and we're talking about the Rent Guidelines Board in New York City, and our guest is State Senator Julia Salazar, a Brooklyn Democrat. You mentioned the fact that costs are going up across the board. I have to imagine that applies to the building owners and operators themselves as well. So is there reason to assume that the Rent Guidelines Board's recommendations are reflective of their costs as well and that the increases that they're allowing are based on the need to keep those buildings operating and financially viable, I guess? Or is there reason to believe based on who serves on the board or its track record that these rent increases that they're recommending are are not necessary? So the Rent Guidelines Board is obligated to consider all of these factors, right? Increasing costs for property owners, increasing costs to maintain their buildings, price increases in, in general. It's important to note that the most recent information that is evaluated by the board that's available is from 2021 right now. 
Um, and that matters because uh, naturally in, in 2021, while uh, rent-stabilized landlords were actually still seeing profits, it was a different time, right? In 2021, the economy was in a difficult state <laughs> in New York City, and um, landlords were not seeing, many rent-stabilized landlords were not seeing the profits that they're even seeing now. Um, we saw the, the market stabilize somewhat in 2020 and 2021, people were being offered lower rents. Um, and, uh, and then we saw, have seen pretty drastic rent increases on a lot of tenants, um, uh, in, in terms of like what the market looks like as a, as a whole. And in, the, in so outside of the rent stabilized situation, D- drastic yes. increases. Yes, okay. definitely. Although it is, it's worth considering that many rent stabilized landlords also own, um, market rate units and, gotcha. and see, um, even higher profits from from those units. Um, it's also important to note, and um, some information provided by the staff of the RGB reflects this, that over the past 30 years, rent-stabilized landlords have seen historically high profits and, and in ever-increasing, um, a 50% overall increase in in um, their their net income from rents. And so even as their costs are increasing, um, it's important to note that they're, they're doing fine. Additionally, the RGB um, and the city and the state are not actually obligated to guarantee returns on investments for um, people who invest in, in rental properties. And, that, and that's true um, in any other industry, right? We, we don't guarantee um, returns on, on investment um, as a rule. And um, I think it's it's more in the public interest for us to do the best we can to guarantee that people can afford to stay in their homes. Um, so I really think that a rent increase is, is not justified. And certainly that it, it isn't good policy that it will have a, a serious negative impact on tenants and unduly, frankly, benefit the rent-stabilized landlords and, and allow them to continue to see even higher profits than they currently are uh, on the backs of working people who are struggling to pay their rents. Well, then when you think about producing the outcomes that you want, does that require some sort of state intervention? Or do you think that future that you're talking about can be achieved with the current landscape of state and city laws? So in, in 2019, when we passed the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act, the HSTPA, we considered that um, rent-stabilized tenants were, um, in in some ways, legally being taken advantage of through policies such as vacancy decontrol, um, mechanisms that allowed for the deregulation of rent-stabilized units, um, and also for rent increases on on um, rent-stabilized apartments, making the the overall rent-stabilized housing stock less affordable. So we sought to address that. Since then, of course, we've seen the economic impacts of a pandemic and uh, a a lot of financial pressure on families and tenants. I think that there is more that we need to do at the state level in order to um, protect tenants from high rent increases. And as you know, I've been working on the good cause eviction bill, uh, which would apply to to unregulated units, but that's the majority of housing stock in, um, in New York City and in New York State. Uh, rental housing stock. The fact that we're potentially, and, and it was a preliminary vote um, a couple weeks ago, the final one will be in June, but 
but quite likely looking at rent increases for about a million tenant households uh, in New York City, this is it, it underscores the importance of expanding uh, rights and protections for tenants beyond uh, the rent stabilized system to try to bring more stability to the housing market. We're seeing rents constantly increase, certainly in my district in Brooklyn and Queens, um, but really a, a across the city and across the state. And we have a responsibility at the state level to not only protect tenants in New York City, but, but outside the city as well from some pretty astronomical rent increases. When you think about this system and this framework, does it make sense to you to even have private ownership of these rent-stabilized buildings? Or if we're going to think about housing probably the way you think about housing, as I imagine a human right, should the state be the ones who are overseeing this property? Should they be the ones administering it? So there is no uh, need to generate a profit. The state just needs to you know, run even, keep things uh, from going in the red. Yeah, um, I do think that there is more that the any local rent guidelines board should consider and more that the state should consider in establishing laws that regulate rents or even just in the case of, say, good cause eviction, um, provide protections um, and, and rights to tenants um, in, in the event that their landlord seeks to evict them via a high rent increase um, or simply without good cause, without giving a good reason for doing so. And it's important for us to, you know, the the Rent Guidelines Board currently isn't considering the actual profits that that landlords are making, right? They they look at the cost increases and that makes it seem like um, rent-stabilized landlords across the board are struggling when, in fact, there isn't data to support that. Um, there's not evidence that they are struggling, even though there's very clear evidence that in New York City, for example, about half of um, all New York City residents uh, cannot afford their basic needs right now. So, yeah, I think that there is more that the RGB needs to consider. There's more than that um, the state needs to consider in evaluating these things. I don't think that the state should be seeking to, like, unduly intervene in local governance and the work of the Rent Guidelines Board. I personally, I would like to see reform of the Rent Guidelines Board so that they have to actually require uh, rent-stabilized landlords to open their books. Um, And that would, I think, better inform a vote on on rent increases or even potentially a, a rent freeze or a rent rollback, which would provide relief to so many tenants, but additionally provide a little bit more balance as we we see these landlords um, seeing increased returns and profits on average every year, um, while it it is only becoming harder and harder for rent-stabilized tenants to be able to afford to live. Well, finally, um, the meeting began with some chanting from the audience, which is Nothing new to people in Albany, if you've seen our budget hearings uh, in the legislative office building. But uh, unlike what we see in Albany, the meeting in New York City escalated with protesters jumping on the stage where the board members were held and then uh, even circling them for a while as they held a bit of a march. What do you think of that form of protest? 
I think that civil disobedience, direct action like that, um, often gets people the desired result that that they need. Um, I think it's laudable. Um, if if I it was it was a session day, but um, I would have gladly joined the the council members um, and electeds who were present, seeking to d just demonstrate in the meeting and um, and force the board to really be accountable to the public and and to hear them. Um, it was a, a well attended preliminary vote meeting um, by tenants who were actually impacted by the decisions that the board makes. It didn't really ultimately disrupt the meeting in the sense that they were able to conduct business. They still um, held the preliminary vote. Um, but uh, I think that it, it was a, the fact that we're talking about it right now, that action achieved the goal of bringing attention to uh, the impact that this will have on people's lives and demonstrating that elected officials who are accountable to our constituents don't support these rent increases um, and, in fact, even demand a, a rent rollback on rent-stabilized tenants. So I, I think I, I saw that Mayor Adams, for example, who is not known to be, um, you know, like a militant tenant activist. To say he, the least. Right, yeah, right, um, to you know, put it diplomatically, he even responded to the preliminary vote saying that the higher end of the range that they voted to recommend uh, at 7% is just like totally unsustainable and untenable for rent stabilized tenants. And and so that, that says a lot to me. Um, you know, you don't need to be that sympathetic to renters in order to recognize that a 7% rent increase is incredibly high. And frankly, when people's incomes are not increasing, unemployment is still a serious problem in New York right now. Since the beginning of the pandemic, even a 2% rent increase can mean that people cannot afford to stay in their home anymore. Um, and that should never be the case for working people and for New York, and, and really for any New Yorkers in a state that has the the wealth and resources that, that we do, which it brings up, I think, different policy solutions such as um, the housing access voucher program and, and other things that we have a responsibility at the state level to implement to make sure that uh, people can afford to live. We'll come back to that idea of this being civil disobedience. Do you feel like you'd be that receptive and supportive to the idea if it was aimed at the state Senate, if it was uh, a day where you guys were passing a series of gun control measures and gun owners were leaping down from the fourth floor gallery and marching around the podium before walking out, would you have the same respect for that type of protest? Or, or because this is something you're more sympathetic to, are you more open to the idea of this type of protest? Yeah. I mean, short of I think political speech has to be protected mm -hmm. always, um, even if I Isn't there a time and place, though, for it. I, I guess you could say that there strategically is a time and place for it. But, um, you know, we, we do see civil disobedience, as you know, in, in the Capitol, in the state Capitol all the time. Um, and I think that it's great. Okay. <laughs> um, and sometimes sometimes legislators participate in it. Um, you know, you'll you'll see me <laughs> participating in it for sure if, if the state legislature continues to um, fail to act to protect um, unregulated tenants and um, formerly homeless people in, in New York, like we unfortunately um, weren't able to do in the state budget. It, it is, I think, 
a really important, valuable form of direct action. And even when, as an elected official, essentially been a, a target of it before, and um, I think it's just a really important form of political speech, short of hate speech or, or violence, um, which is, is not even you know what, what we're talking about here. Uh, otherwise, I, I think that it's completely valid. And often when we when we see it in the capital, it is effective in achieving its goals, even the, the short-term goals sometimes of raising awareness, bringing attention to something that people otherwise, you know, wouldn't pay attention to if if um, folks just showed up and, and uh, politely requested that we listen to them. It's something that the public often feels like they need to do in order to get our attention, in order to force us to actually do what we were elected to do. So I totally respect civil disobedience and direct action like that. Well, we've been speaking with State Senator Julia Salazar. She is a Brooklyn Democrat. Senator, thank you so much for making the time. Thanks, Dave. I really appreciate it. Is your business, agency, or service interested in delivering your message to more than two dozen radio stations statewide carrying Capital Press Room? If so, visit capitalpressroom.org to contact our underwriting team.